It's mid-July in the United States, and while many Americans are trying to get out of the heat, U.S. President Joe Biden will be heading straight for it. Joe Biden's first trip as U.S. president to the Middle East will include Saudi Arabia. Israel and the occupied West Bank are also on the itinerary. But it's not just the weather. The president is being criticized by members of his own Democratic Party for ignoring human rights in favor of economics. With U.S. gas prices at their highest point in years and low poll numbers, some analysts think President Biden may be using this trip to solve his own political problems. To quote what one expert told me last week, it is a very risky trip that the president is going on. We talked to Ali Harb, a senior producer for Al Jazeera.com, who's been writing about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Palestine, and what kind of risks it holds for the U.S. president and the region. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So we have you here today to talk about U.S. President Joe Biden's big Middle East trip. First up is a visit to Israel, and he's also due to visit Palestine. And then he'll make his first trip to Saudi Arabia as president of the United States. So let's actually start where you and I are in the United States. Gas prices have dropped a bit very recently, but they've been very high in the U.S. for several months now. Gas prices in the U.S. hit a record $5 a gallon, almost $2 more than a year ago. Eye-popping numbers. $8 a gallon gas. Obviously, Saudi is associated with oil and gas. So what do Americans think about Biden right now and what do they think about this trip? The president's approval ratings are not the greatest. We've seen incredible rise in prices, not just oil and gas and fuel, but everything else is more expensive than it was a year ago. So we've seen the president release oil reserves from the United States government's storage facilities and dump them into the market. The White House says it's releasing 50 million barrels of oil from its strategic reserves. But that has not put a meaningful reduction in what Americans are paying at the pump. So Americans are frustrated. And to be fair to President Biden, economists say that American president does not control the global economy, but the president at least has got to try to do something. Saudi Arabia is one of the largest oil producers and basic economics. Supply goes up. Prices go down. So what Biden will hope to do, Ali says, is convince the Saudis to help flood the market. Can he do that? That remains to be seen. Saudi Arabia does not operate on its own. It's part of the OPEC plus oil cartel, which sets limits on production. There is pressure on OPEC Plus to increase production because of high oil prices, especially from Western countries. OPEC Plus includes Saudi Arabia and Russia. He will hope to do one of two things, get the Saudis to break the OPEC Plus agreement or get the Saudis to return to OPEC Plus and convince the rest of the countries, including Russia, which is the plus in the OPEC Plus, to raise production limits. 
So his administration, when asked about why is he going, they'll tell you, yes, energy is one item on the agenda, but it's a quote unquote big agenda. <laughs> there is normalization with Israel. There is Iran. There is quote unquote counterterrorism. The poll numbers have a little less than one third of Americans approving of Biden's trip, Ali says. But he's covered U.S. elections and spoken to U.S. voters across the country for years. And there's one thing he knows about them. Foreign policy is not a top priority. They're more concerned with domestic issues. So if the result is not going to be a significant drop in prices at the pump, then this trip overall will have negative effects on the president's standing. But it seems that his advisors and his administration and he himself have determined that it's a risk worth taking. Hmm. It sounds like a tightrope act that we're going to be watching here. So we'll get back to Saudi Arabia in a minute. But as we mentioned, Biden's first stop is to Israel. Mm -hmm. So Biden has been in the U.S. Senate for decades. The first Israeli prime minister he met was Golda Meir. I just spent a long time with Golda Meir just after the Six-Day War and before the Yom Kippur War, just days before. And I think he met pretty much every single prime minister since then from his days in the Senate. If I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. And if you recall from Senate testimonies, Biden describes Israel as an investment in U.S. national security. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. So Biden comes from this Cold War school that Israel is akin to an American military base in the Middle East. Biden says, if there wasn't an Israel, we need to create one. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. And from what we have seen, there is no evidence to suggest that he has changed his thinking. That's also true for the American people, but increasingly less so. According to a recent Gallup poll, more than half the country supports Israel, while a quarter supports the Palestinians. But it also shows numbers have changed in the past five or six years. There has been a greater awareness amongst the U.S. public of the suffering of Palestinians, of the reality of the occupation. The steady increase started when President Trump came to office in 2016. American support for Palestinians has increased from 19% to 26%. In May of 2021, during the war in Gaza, protesters were on the streets of many cities across the United States. The same poll had the American people's support for Israel decreasing from about 62% to 55% during the same time. Major human rights organizations cited and quoted by the American government when talking about human rights abuses in places like Syria, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. These groups have come out and accused Israel of apartheid. So there is a shift in the public perception of Israel. But this shift has not translated to the political establishment. And the U.S. Congress is still a huge supporter of Israel, Ali says. 
In fact, Republicans were egging on annexation of parts of the West Bank at a time when the Israeli government was reluctant to do it. So any administration, not just Biden, has got to weigh in what Congress thinks, also what the public thinks. There's also evidence that Israeli security forces targeted and killed Al Jazeera's correspondent, our colleague, Shadin Abu Akleh, in the occupied West Bank in May. Several media organizations, including CNN, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, have determined Abu Akleh was killed by Israel's military. Shadin was a U.S. citizen, and the State Department just came out with their investigation, which has left many people upset, including her family. We were expecting that such an investigation would actually hold the perpetrators accountable and would carry out a transparent investigation that is free from any political pressure. The State Department's investigation conceded the bullet that killed Shireen was likely from an Israeli weapon, but that there was no definitive conclusion. Here's Ned Price with the State Department. The bullet was damaged to the extent that the independent third-party examiners weren't able to come to a conclusive uh, uh, judgment regarding uh, the origin of the bullet. And Shireen's death was not intentional, they said. Dozens of U.S. senators have called on the FBI to investigate. This is Shireen's niece, Lina Apuekle, speaking out on Shireen's behalf. We will continue to call for justice. We will continue to call on the U.S. to carry out a transparent investigation by an independent body. In addition, we continue to call on the U.N. and the ICC to carry out an investigation and hold Israel accountable and put an end to grotesque impunity that Israel continues to enjoy. So I asked Ali to explain how Biden meeting with Israeli officials plays into that. So in terms of the visit to Israel at a time when an American journalist was killed, the calculation in the White House must be, and I'm speculating here, is that strengthening relations with Israel can only be politically beneficial. And the opposite, which is calling for the FBI to investigate the killing of this American citizen and demanding that Israel holds the soldiers or the commanders, whoever is responsible, accountable, that, under the White House's calculation, is a politically bad move. We have a White House that is seeing this as something beneficial, going and shaking hands with the interim Israeli prime minister and reasserting American commitment to Israel's security specifically. Speaking of the Israeli prime minister, Israel has a new prime minister, Yair Lapid, as of two weeks ago. He met with France's Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron last week, and Macron encouraged him to restart peace talks with the Palestinians, which seemed to go nowhere. Is that where things are right now? Nowhere? Yeah, there's, there isn't much of a peace process. I'll give you an example. The U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, holds regular meetings with his Israeli counterpart, and the respective security teams. And more often than not, the readouts describing those meetings don't mention Palestinians. The reality of the occupation is so entrenched that the Palestinians don't surface 
unless there's something major, like the killing of a journalist. So Biden is also meeting with Palestinian leaders. I'm curious what you think, based on people you've talked to, of how these talks will go. Let's assess how what Biden has done since coming into office to Palestinians. He restored some aid, not the full Obama-era aid to the Palestinian. He's mildly criticized settlement expansion when it happens without consequences for Israel. And he has talked about opposition to any action that exasperates tensions from both sides. And I think this will be the line that he will bring to Mahmoud Abbas when he meets the Palestinian president in Bethlehem. Aid may be discussed, but there will be no fundamental issues on the table. The future of Palestine is not only being tested by Biden's visit with Israeli and Palestinian officials, it's also being tested by his next stop, which is Saudi Arabia. Saudi does not recognize Israel officially, and it has no diplomatic relations with Israel, but it does have some relations with Israel that are less in the open. And there are reports that Biden could be helping Saudi Arabia with a roadmap in that direction of normalization, meaning normal diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So we've talked about it on this show before, this roadmap to normalization and what it might look like. But can you explain a little bit what could be happening here with this visit? So normalization is very popular in Washington. You'd be hard-pressed to find more than six or seven Congress members out of 535, counting the House and the Senate, who oppose normalization. But, I mean, Donald Trump, despite his tarnished legacy secured the so-called Abraham Accords between Arab states and Israel, and Democrats praised him for that. The Biden administration has said it will continue on that track. Saudi Arabia is the big prize. The Israelis are not making any secrets about their wanting to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. And no doubt Biden will try to push for more overt normalization to reflect the covert normalization of relations, to reflect the de facto alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran. I like that you brought up the overt versus the covert, because overtly what Saudi Arabia has said publicly is that normalization wouldn't happen without progress on a two-state solution. Here's what Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said in 2018, and I quote, I believe the Palestinians and the Israelis have the right to have their own land, but we have to have a peace agreement to assure the stability for everyone and to have normal relations. So it doesn't look like that is what's going to happen with this trip, thus overt normalization won't be the case. Is that how you see it? Yeah, that's how I see it. At least not complete normalization. We can see incremental normalization steps. For example, allowing Palestinian Israelis uh, who are Muslim to fly directly from Tel Aviv to perform Hajj every year. For example, making trade between the two countries more possible. 
I'm not completely ruling out normalization. It may be something that could happen next year. It may be something that could happen under a Republican president. It may be something that the Saudis may want to give as a quote unquote gift to, to an American president in exchange for something else. But for now, there isn't a big indication that full-on normalization would happen. And I could be wrong. The Middle East is like reading tea leaves. So just a disclaimer. I like that. Thank you. (laughs) So this trip does bring back some memories of a U.S. president visiting the region. And I am, of course, talking about former President Donald Trump with his hand on a glowing orb surrounded by Saudi Arabia's crown prince Salman, Egypt's president Sisi. And just over a year later, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Trump, of course, was shunned for his continued support of Salman. And then Biden, as a candidate, was promising to punish Saudi Arabia like the pariah they are. Those were his words. What happened to that? And what will happen now? There is an Arabic saying that what you calculate on the field is different than what comes out at the mill. I think where Biden stands now is he wants the Saudis to pump more oil. He wants Saudis to perhaps coordinate with the Israelis and coordinate with other Gulf partners to create some sort of defense pact. He wants the Saudis to enlist in the pro-Western camp against Russia and start imposing sanctions on Russia. And that's not realistic for the Saudis to just ditch the Russians. And that's where ideals like human rights sort of take a backseat. You'll hear administration officials saying human rights are always on the table. And I don't think they're telling a mistruth here or they're lying. The question is, what are they doing on the table? So it's also worth talking about some of the countries that are left out of the room, because, of course, this is a Middle East visit, but he's not visiting all the countries in the Middle East. Particularly left out would be Iran. So while this is happening, Biden's efforts to get back to the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal, once thought to be quite close, have all but fallen apart. And on this trip, there will be conversations about Iran, presumably, because it's something that Saudi Arabia and Israel are both interested in. What do you see happening there? Yeah, I mean, the Biden administration came in and said that they would return to the Iran nuclear deal. And why is this being stalled? Is it about the Islamic Revolutionary Guard being listed as a terrorist organization? Is it about Iran wanting warranties that a future president will not revoke the deal? Neither side has come out on the record and says, one, two, three, this is what the issue is. In fact, American officials have been clear that they will not go on the record about what's causing the delay, Ali says. But what we do know is that a deal has not been secured. So the Biden administration has been talking about a plan B. They won't say what the plan B is, but we've heard from administration officials that there is work on some sort of military integration in the region. So Bahrain, UAE, Saudi Arabia, instead of operating in silos, they would have synergy working together and trying to shoot down any Iranian rockets and specifically regional response to Iran. So 
Finally, Ali, we started this conversation talking about what Americans might think about this trip. But what about the people of the countries that Biden is expected to visit in the Middle East? I mean, the American president is is the most powerful person in the world. That's the international public perception. So in a case where there are, there's elections, in the case of Israel, this could help boost election prospects. And in a state like Saudi Arabia, where there are no elections, this could help boost the grip on power that Mohammed bin Salman has and put to bed any speculations about whether he will be able to succeed his father. When a president of the United States sits down with you and takes a picture with you smiling and you sign agreements, if the United States government and the president of the United States is standing behind you and recognizing you, that bolsters your grip on power. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Ruby Zaman, Chloe Lee, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. And our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad. We'll be back.